Hi, and welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I'm Amanda Nystrom, the Chief Operating Officer at Command Prompt, a leader in open source excellence since 1997. We hope that you enjoy the podcast today and contact us for your Postgres and full stack needs, including 24-7 support. Find us at 503-667-4564 at commandprompt.com or at sales at commandprompt.com. Enjoy. More Than a Refresh is brought to you by Greenplum Database. Greenplum is a PostgreSQL-based, open-source, massively parallel database for analytics, machine learning, and AI. A VMware technology, Greenplum is a modern database that isn't limited by your data size or vertical scaling limitations. For more information or to get in touch, visit greenplum.org. Welcome to More Than a Refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. Our guest today is Andres Ariada, Director of Consumer Privacy Engineering at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Andreas, introduce yourself a little. Hi, JD. Um, I'm Andreas. I work for this organization that protects um, people's civil liberties and human rights uh, in the technology world. And basically, uh, I work in the tech area where I look at policy and the actual technology from an engineering perspective and see what issues uh, are important, what we should be working on, what might be a problem in the future for people and how we can protect people. So civil liberties in the technical realm, um, you know, obviously lots of people, I mean, I, you'd have to live under a rock not to know who say the ACLU is. Yeah. Um, but the EFF is more focused on say digital privacy rights um, and, you know, liberties within uh, the internet for lack of a better way to put it. Would that be correct? Yeah, we definitely really focus just on things that have to do with technology and how we interact with technology and how that can be beneficial. We care about promoting innovation, uh, protecting innovation, uh, but we also care about how that technology, you know, development might affect negatively other people um, uh, because you have both sides of the coin. And we just try to, our vision is just to ensure that people, when they interact with it, with technology, it's a good interaction. It's a direction that is helping them, not hurting them. And that is just building a better, better future. And I guess like our main, one of our main differentiators with our organizations is that um, traditionally you have lots of lawyers that look at the policy uh, and it's great to have that. But when you're looking at the realm of technology, you need people that actually worked on it, that really understand it, that they study it. Uh, so at EFF, we have a big team of, of, of lawyers, but we also have a big team of activists and a big team of, of technologists that worked for many years or did a lot of research in technology. So when we talk about technology, we're not just having a good understanding of the policy of the laws that surround it, but we have also people that can tell you, well, that's not how actually code or math works. Um, and we have seen this like uh, many times with different technologies where policymakers or others have proposals were like, oh, that's a really nice proposal, but that's not how physics, like mathematics work. So that's just not possible. That's actually funny that you bring that up. One of the things that, you know, uh, my company does, we do a lot of PostgreSQL consulting. That's kind of our, our niche. 
Uh, and I end up reading contracts from lawyers all the time because just like any company, when you get a client, you have a you know services agreement or you know a terms of service or something like that. And what a lot of people, especially technical people, don't understand, at least in my experience, is that lawyers are like if if you hand a contract that is yours to the client's lawyer, if the lawyer rips it apart. The, it, it, there's two things that are happening. One, the lawyer likely doesn't understand the contract because it's technical in nature. Or two, their job is to protect their client as voraciously as possible, right? It, it's not about necessarily fair or right it, between the two parties. It's fair and right for their party, which is, you know, the client. And what I found is, um, you know, our contract it almost it, because it's so old. I mean, we've been around since 97. It's been massaged and matured through, you know, all kinds of Fortune 500 lawyers. Um, that it, it rarely actually uh, gets heavily redlined, except for one clause. We have a clause in there about intellectual property. And lawyers, they always redline it. And then I have to either get on the phone with them or I have to. Um, you know, email them and explain the purpose of the clause. And once they understand the purpose of the clause, it, they always accept it. They're always okay with it. But when you read it as part of just what it is, uh, they, they, they just immediately redline it. And it, not to go down a long path with this, but my point was, is that you bringing up policy and saying, you know, that's a great policy, but that's just not how physics or math works. Um, it, it, I, I think that's actually uh, important, uh, a, a very important statement. There's a, a movie on Netflix right now called Don't Look Up, and it's got Leonardo oh, DiCaprio, yeah. okay? Mm -hmm. um, now, it's a really unrealistic movie because Leonardo DiCaprio is involved with a woman his age, so that was actually kind of a surprise. Um, but he plays this scientist, and one of the policymakers says when you go on tv he says something to the effect of keep it light keep it you know keep it fun uh no math and yeah. the, char the character's response is but it's all math right yep <laughs> and, and i think i honestly think that our worlds or at least in the united states the united states problems that we have would be so would be much easier to solve if both sides of the equation being the citizen as well as the representative as the other side actually understood the problems that they're trying to solve yeah i mean that i i think that movie has like many relevant things to both of our jobs uh, and what you were just commenting about your interaction with, with lawyers and the technical aspect. Uh, this is one of the things that we've always tried to explain on both sides, right? Like um, you'll see people in technology get really frustrated with policymakers and they're like, well, they don't understand technology. And we're like, yeah, but you don't understand the law either. And that's also important. And it will be the same frustration with policymakers. They're like, well, you know, they don't understand policy and we're like yeah but you don't understand technology so we've been trying to like bridge that gap and remind people that work in technology that they also need to understand the policy like because you're interacting with humans and humans are not just simple code you know like it's very complex interaction and there's like 
a lot of issues. This is why like privacy, competition, security, and all these issues are so hard, right? Because like there, there's not like one thing or the other. It's a very complex gradient of, of behaviors, interaction, things that people care, threats. Um, and it's a, it's a very difficult thing. And I like the movie because it kind of shows that, right? Like you, it shows those both sides that have a hard time understanding each other because they're not there's not a bridging part, right? Uh, necessarily. Um, and this has been a thing that, you know, it happens everywhere. It's not just the US. I mean, uh, but uh, I feel like slowly with moving towards here, you, you see more and more policymakers that are having uh, technologists in their teams just so they can give them that technical perspective and things and like grounding. Um, it is just that Deloitte is a very low, slow process and it, it, it is very frustrating, but, uh, you know, that's what we have to work with. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. And one of the other things, as someone who's technical myself, um, you brought up a really good point there. And, and I want to get back to the backstory and mission of VFF, but we've really struck a chord here in that many moons ago, I mean, this is probably, what are we, this is probably 18 years ago. Um, I was really, I, I'm still very frustrated with the government. Let me be clear, I'm very <laughs> frustrated with the government. But there was a moment about 18 years ago where I was really frustrated because I was much younger, uh, much less patient, and as our producer will uh, attest to that saying something. Um, and I wanted things to move faster and the government just wasn't moving fast enough. And you have to think about that 18 years ago, the quote unquote internet was still relatively in its infancy, right? Mm -hmm. Now, obviously the internet as a global network existed, it has for what, since the late sixties or something like that. But in terms of consumer adoption, it was really in its infancy. Um, and I had an employee that looked at me uh, and he, he kind of, he was, he was, he's older than I am. So, um, but he looked at me kind of smirked and he said, JD, in what world do you actually want a fast moving, efficient government? And I thought to myself for a minute, and if you think about it, when was the last time we had a fast moving, efficient government? I, I'm, I'm posing this question to you. Do you know when that was? Uh, I'm not sure. Germany, World War II. Well, that's a good point. Okay. That's yeah, why well. we don't want a fast, efficient moving government. Because we are all human. And all of us have flaws. And all of us have egos. And all of us make decisions in the moment. They're ne not necessarily the right decision. So for technical people, my advice as someone who's been doing this a very long time is that we we need to we actually need to slow down and we need to start saying not can we do this but should we do this because of course we can we can do pretty much anything at this point i mean we're going to mars for goodness sakes I, th I think that's a really good point when i was uh, growing up with computers many times when someone would do something and people would ask why, and people thought it was smart and cool to say, because I can, 
And that was kind of the culture. And I think it's, it's, it's a very important point just because you can't doesn't mean you should. Um, and I, I mean, we see this right now with all the privacy and competition issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of about human nature there. Um, but as you were mentioning, like the slow moving, uh, we've seen this before, uh, things, for example, um, when it comes to one of the very contentious issues that like people would get really fired up is uh, freedom of speech, right? Sure. And uh, when, uh, you know, there's one thing that comes out that a big part of the population seems to really strongly agree. And they're like, yes, let's do this now. And they all jump and do this and pass a law or something like that. And once heads cool off, uh, people realize, oh, we made a mistake because sure, there's this one thing that you really hate right now, but by passing a law, you open a door to do this, not just for the thing you hate, but also for the things you might actually love. Uh, and this is why like, it, it's important for people to, to calm down and like sit and really think through things because exactly because the, the, the law is so hard to, to move and takes so long it's even harder to change things, right? Like once something is is into law, like it, it, you're gonna now to, gonna have to fight that to change it, and it's gonna be very hard. So I, I think that's why also you, you have to think about the speed. Uh, you might have one, you might have you might have been able to achieve something really fast, but then changing it uh, will be really harder or slower. Um, and we have to think about like those repercussions. At EFF, it's it's a it's a thing that we do a lot. Um, you know, uh, it, an issue will come out, uh, a new issue will come out, and everyone will jump and give their opinion. And you will see lots of individuals, lots of organizations doing big statements because you know everyone wants to ride that um, that news wave. And it's good to ride a news wave if you want to stay relevant, right? But at EFF, sometimes we're kind of slow to answer to some of these things because there, we have a thinking that we'd rather be right than first. Um, so we'd rather sit down and have a lot of discussions and look for those nuisance, uh, for that nuisance and like, and think about the people that people usually don't think about, uh, those marginalized communities, look at issues that, are, you know, like how is this gonna negatively affect others? And that takes some time that takes a lot of thinking, that takes a lot of debating. And, and we're now like around 100 people. Um, um, and you can imagine there's a lot of opinions of all of sections, political and like all sorts of opinions. And we have to find something that works for for everyone or for the for or that doesn't negatively affect others. And this is why it's good to like, as you say, like sometimes things to not be too fast. No, I agree. So before we get to it, because I think you and I could probably talk about this for a very long time, let's, let's get back to EFF a little bit. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, we discussed the mission a bit, but can you tell me a little bit of like the origins of the EFF, the backstory? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it started with like the crypto wars. I think that's, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the games and there was a raid and I don't know the full story with uh, Steve Jackson games and, and the raid that the government, the secret service did. Um, but uh, I think the, the story that more, more people might be familiar and that is, that is, that is 
very relevant is the crypto wars. And, you know, basically um, the, the short story is that uh, people wanted to like uh, have ways of encrypting, securing uh, communications available to everyone, uh, which we take for granted now. This is how the internet can function. That is how commerce can function uh, across borders. Uh, but back then there were like uh, export restrictions and, and basically this became a fight until it, it could be considered like, well, code is speech uh, and freedom of speech is a big thing in the US. Uh, and that obviously was a battle that was won and that allowed us to like actually use it all. And that, that seems so, such a silly thing, but back then it was a big, big fight. And we still having that fight today uh, in different ways. Um, we just don't see how it affects our lives, right? And it, we have to look at whenever we buy something, uh, you see that lock on your browser uh, because your communication is secure. You want to make sure that when you send the information about your credit card that no one else in the middle can look at, the, at that and then just steal your, your data. That when you access your bank account and no one can see your passwords, something simple like that, right? Like just using and logging into a website, you don't want anyone in the middle to look at your password. And that's basically what encryption gives us. Now, the conversation is still relevant because we have now governments pushing for uh, backdoors basically breaking that encryption so they can get into communications mostly or messages and and this is why how like it's interesting to see that this problem it's if it started 30 years ago and it's interesting to see how this problem that we fought 30 years ago uh, is still very relevant today even though it should be obvious that strong encryption is fundamental for the internet to work it's fundamental for basic things like commerce it's fundamental to even be able to use your personal information for some services. Uh, it's fundamental to be able to communicate with people freely and to be to have your opinions with other people without being uh, without the government interfering on them. Um, you yeah. know, you're absolutely right, and uh, I want to touch on that, but I want to, the backstory a little bit uh, because <clears throat> the. I, you know, I forgot about the crypto wars, which I can't believe that I did. Uh, but that was a very important thing. And I want to address that in just a moment. But it, the Steve Jackson games is the one that I brought up to you. For those that don't know, Steve Jackson games is a, uh, it's think Dungeons and Dragons, but it's generic. And they have different worlds that they've built based on a standard rule set. Okay. The, Back in the day, and I know that's what old people say, but I'm looking pretty squarely at 50, so I'm getting there. Uh, back in the day, there was a, a world that Steve Jackson games uh, called Cyberpunk. And you may, uh, most of our listeners are like, isn't that kind of retro? Well, back then, that was what, you know, when you talked about, you know, hacking and you know, fracking, which, you know, phone hacking, things like that. It was all cyberpunk stuff. It was all, all the science fiction based um, because really it was a very few amount of people uh, that had either the skill or the wherewithal or the talent to achieve these types of things. Um, but the short of it is the secret service raided them, took all their equipment. And then the U S government, the, the, the court system, the, 
uh, actually swatted down the Secret Service for uh, basically violating Steve Jackson Games' rights. Um, but to this day, they haven't been able to uh, get back all of their intellectual property from that raid, even though the government has been ordered to give it up. Now, I don't know why, and I don't know if it's under national security or whatever, but there's that. Now, the crypto wars um, are even more important. And the big crypto war that started this was a technology called PGP. It stood for pretty good privacy. And you could not export this, uh, this code outside the United States because it was considered unbreakable. And therefore, we didn't want, uh, the United States didn't want other actors to have it. But, and this goes to the point of being very clear in policy and law. And this is why tech needs to slow down and think before they do, and why bureaucrats and lawmakers uh, need to educate themselves uh, more deeply instead of just reacting to, say, a news cycle. People got around the export restrictions with PGP very simply. They printed it on paper and would ship a thousand pound book not thousand pound, thousand page book. And all it was, was the code for PGP. And so other countries, what people, other countries would do is then just transcribe that book back into code and they now have that technology. This is what happens when you don't slow down and think about what you're actually doing because you create an environment where good actors and I don't, who's to say the other ones were bad actors, right? But for the United States' purposes, our people, our citizens had a benefit of a technology um, and the creators of that technology wanted everybody to be able to have it. There was a law restricting that export, but the law was badly written. And so it was easily circumvented. And now we have, you know, uh, encryption everywhere. Um, and you can't imagine, you know, as Andra said, you can't imagine plugging in your credit card into an insecure website. Well, you got to think about all your information. So I, I really, I, the reason I, I kind of went off on that narrative there is I, I really appreciate that you brought up the crypto wars because I, I really have forgotten about all that went down. And I actually remember the shirts. We used to wear shirts that were code is speech. Yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with the EFF? Because like you just said, they've been around for 30 years. Um, how did you get involved? So I joined almost five years now, which is crazy to think how fast time goes. Um, I, I was aware of the EFF uh, for a long time since I was a kid, just because I was really into computers and technology and security. And it was kind of hard to not know about the FF. You were really into that, especially back then. Like it was like, I mean, there's, there aren't lots of organizations that fight for this sort of stuff, but even less than. Um, and I always admired them. Uh, one of like, there were lots of things that I was like really passionate about that the FF worked on, but I never thought I would work there. Uh, I don't know why. And, you know, I became an engineer, telecommunications and electronics engineer. I, I 
really was into like um, encrypted communications and satellite communications, how, how you can like uh, intercept radio frequencies and all these sort of fun things. And ended up working for the telco industry uh, where I saw, you know, uh, a lot of really crazy stuff. Uh, you, I started realizing um, how easy it is to look at people's information, their location, uh, you know, all these assumptions that uh, things that people would say, oh, you're paranoid and working in there, just seeing how easily accessible all of that was, um, was really scary. And when the Snowden stuff came up, I was like, well, I wonder how easy it would be to get this information uh, really fast, right? Like some of, and you know, it takes a couple of hours to build a program that does that. Uh, you can easily get like, depending how much access you have, like it's, it, you, it's easy to get like the location of someone if they're using a phone. Uh, there's these things called the internet proxy, which is basically the, the, the server that handles all the traffic that goes into the internet. It's like the connection between the, the network of the phone and the actual internet. And of course you can do the other things that like you can block phones from accessing the internet if they haven't paid, uh, or you can redirect them to another website and say, hey, you need to pay. But if you can do that, then you can redirect them to a lot of other things. You can, you can look at the traffic, you can uh, segment traffic, you can do analysis on traffic, and you can see how this can be very invasive, uh, especially for sites that do not have encryption. Um, and even for sites that have encryption, you know, if you go to suicideprevention.org or something like that, I don't know if that site exists, I'm just like making it up, but if you saw something like that, the content might be uh, encrypted, so you don't know the content, but the domain name, the, the .org or .com, that whole thing before it, uh, suicide prevention pretty much tells you what you need to know. Um, so it was just realization of like how, how, how exposed we are as people. Um, and I, it, I just just come to a point where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to do something else. Uh, I was being consistently told that I needed to get an MBA if I wanted to go higher. So I went and said, well, you know, this is the perfect opportunity. I'll go and get an MBA and I'll take that opportunity to try to start my own company that does something good. Um, so I went, I did an MBA. I tried to launch a startup. Um, it didn't work. It had to do with the blockchain. I'm sorry to everyone. <laughs> uh, but it's good I, I, but it didn't work um it, it had to do with like um pharmaceuticals you know um there's this issue where people buy in many countries uh, medicines over the counter and there's a high probability uh, that it will be counterfeit uh and we were trying you know the uh, these holograms that come in the boxes actually get counterfeited really fast the counterfeiters catch up like unless you have a lab to analyze the actual peels or whatever it came uh you cannot tell them apart you can show it to physicians and they cannot tell the peels apart um so we thought oh maybe if we have something immutable and all these things that the blockchain has maybe people can verify it for many reasons it didn't work um and I had to go back to corporate and I just like, you know, I was looking at the different possibilities, uh, different job offers, and I just wasn't feeling it. Like clearly I had like many say that when you do an MBA is because you're in crisis and you don't know what you're doing. So you go and kind of study something while you try to figure out what you're going to do. And I think after doing my MBA, I was still in crisis where like, I was like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I'm not happy with the offers. Like they might pay really well. They're technically, they're interesting, 
but something didn't feel right. And I was lucky enough that I saw uh, somewhere in Hacker News or Reddit uh, that the FF was looking for someone. And it turned out I felt like, oh, that's the description sounds like someone like me. Um, and I believe like no way EFF is going to hire me. I'm across the ocean. I'm, I'm living in France. They're not going to fly me all the way there if they have all these people in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I got lucky. I got hired uh, and I work here. Um, and I kind of, it, it's great because I get to work on many of the things I was working before in the sense of like, I use my knowledge in telecommunications, everything I saw in the industry. Um, but I get to learn a lot of other things. And at this point, I think telecommunications is actually a very tiny part of what I actually do. Um, and it's just such a, it's been such an exciting thing. And I think this is the best job I've ever had and the best job I will ever have. If I ever leave, I don't, I don't know where I would leave because this is really amazing. Well, you know, it's inspiring to hear that. Um, I haven't worked for anybody since, Oh, 99, I guess. Um, Command Prompt started in 97 part-time. And then I eventually got fired from my last job. And I, um, and since then, I've been full-time with Command Prompt. And I, I think that there's definitely something to be said to have the privilege to work at a place where you can uh, stand by your, your value set, right? There's a lot of folks out there who I, I, frankly, I think that almost anyone you educate would be uh, on the EFF side, right? But unfortunately, they got to feed their family. Yeah, I, I and, think you're right. Yeah, and it's it's a real difficult. Uh, and honestly, I mean, if you think about it, um, it, it, it's not even black and white, right? A, a lot of people are like, especially nowadays, it's just, this is the way it has to be. And the reality is it isn't. I mean, you, you can think of a, a, you know, a lot of people like to, I'm up in the Pacific Northwest. And so enemy number one in the Pacific Northwest is Amazon. It used to be Microsoft. Uh, I don't know how that switched, but enemy number one was Amazon. And I'm not anti-Amazon, but that's like, if you go on Reddit or, you know, the Seattle subreddits, everyone's always complaining about Amazon, you, all the news, all these things. Now, maybe they're a good company, maybe they're a bad company. I, I'm not going to express an opinion on that. But what I will say is that if they're a bad company, they sure as heck offer the best benefits in the industry from day one to their employees, right? So... It, it, it's, it's not as simple as, oh, they're doing this wrong because there's other things they're doing right. And I think that there's a lot of companies out there who have to make sacrifices in order to take care of their people. Okay. Um, so anyway, point being, you know, it, it's not, my point is that it's not black and white, right? And I think it's great that you were able to land at EFF to allow you to explore what your passions are. Um, and I've done a little consulting in the telco world. I actually remember working on an IVR system that ran Microsoft OS2. Now for all anyone that knows the history, I, OS2 is actually an IBM product, but at one point it was a co-venture product and they embedded Microsoft OS2 into this phone system. I, I think that's, you bring really good points. I think they're really important for the tech industry. Like we do have a lot of benefits in this company, so long as you're like in, in the technical part. I believe 
but you, you do have a lot of benefits and start to ignore them. And it is a thing of, of privilege, right? Like it, it, being able to choose and leave a place uh, for something else, is it, it definitely is, says a lot about having some privilege. Um, and I think there, there's, there's a, a balance where you want people working in, in some of these companies that are doing really bad things that are thinking on the right things and they're like pushing back. I, when I was working in Telco, there were really several things I really didn't like and I was pushing them and uh, pushing back on them, not like forward. And, and you know, some of those things actually didn't happen because there was someone speaking up. Uh, and it all it takes sometimes is just that one annoying person that will raise their voice and, and be annoying all the time. Like it really, it really, sometimes is. So it's good to have people like that in all these companies that are always pointing out to the issues with with the many things in, that it, it happens with when you put humans uh, interacting with your service, right? Um, so on one side, I, I encourage people like, don't necessarily feel bad if you're pushing for the right things. At the same time, I think there are specific, particular teams and particular companies which they have people that have really trying to fight the bad stuff, but the leadership absolutely does not care. And the leadership is dead set on doing the wrong things just for money or power or whatever it is. Um, and we have seen that for many years, there, many employees have tried to fight that uh, unsuccessfully. And I do think there comes a point where you have to really ask yourself, uh, what is your role when you're working for that company and if you have the possibility the privilege to be able to leave i think that is that also has a lot of power i think that's a thing that um it's been really relevant now in many industries with like all these things about them saying that there's a shortage of of people working and it's like well it's more like there's a shortage of well-paying jobs uh, but this is a thing where the tech industry really stands out from other industries where they absolutely rely on their employees, on high quality employees, and they need to be able to attract high quality employees. And when they lose that, they lose the competitive edge. When you're the size of Facebook, it takes quite some time for, even if you lose those employees, for those companies to go away. You just have so much money. You know, they can stay there for a long time even if they're losing a ton of money. Um, but I do think it puts a lot of pressure when people just don't want to work for them. There's a, a couple of companies that they are really struggling to hire people. Um, uh, and I think that does put pressure on them. And I think it, it's two types of pressure. I think we need both, like the pressure from inside, from people wanting to do the right thing and from people saying, I will absolutely not work for this company because I think it's actually bad for my um uh, for my career, I think like it will be seen negatively for future employees, and I don't think it's a good thing for, for you know, the planet, for um, for civilization, for democracy, and I think they're just a threat. And I think you need both. Um, I think there, it, as you say, it's not like one thing or the other. It's 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 a it, there's a lot of gradients, and it's very hard. Yeah, I I would agree, and, and you know you you brought up the threat, um, and I'm I'm kind of curious. I mean, based on that. What do you think the greatest threat to like digital privacy um, and really privacy in general? I, I don't I don't think that you can necessarily need to uh, segregate 
you know, digital versus physical, but what do you think the greatest threat to digital privacy is like um, right now? I think one is all the threats that we've had in the past, they still exist, they never go away. And the fights that we've had uh, were like law enforcement was full access to everything. Like if it was up to them, we would all live in crystal, uh, in houses made of crystal walls, transparent walls with cameras and microphones all of the time, because that's the way they would catch all criminals. Like, you know, um, and it's ridiculous, but they've been pushing this from since the internet began, right? Like they, they've always want access to everything. Um, so the, I would say the first one is the traditional threats, we shouldn't, sometimes they seem to go away, but they never do. They just like, they lose their strength and they're just looking for a next thing they can like hop on that maybe people will care about that little thing and will allow them to pass something that will threat all, everyone's privacy. So that's the first thing. Uh, all those traditional things we should never forget they're always there the biggest thing i think that is really relevant today is competition um and it's 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 one of the things that you cannot talk about privacy in the digital world without talking about the issues of the lack of competition um and this is you can see this for example in, in the advertising uh, market um it's been many years of an industry that relies on data, on data analytics, and supposedly being really good at analyzing that data and targeting people. And after all these years, they cannot still prove unequivocally that it works. It works for some things, but not for everything. It's very murky. And every time that there's some pushback on a certain thing, uh, the industry will say, like, and by the industry, I mean, lots like Google or Facebook will say, oh, you know what? It's because we weren't tracking this thing. If we track this thing, we will be able to tell you that it worked. And this has gone to the point where they even track your actual physical purchases with your credit cards to say like, oh, you know what? It's not that targeted advertising doesn't work. It's just that people don't necessarily buy it online. They saw the ad, it influenced them, and they went and bought it somewhere else. So let's get all their data of their purchases, even the ones that weren't online, and let's put all that data together so we can show that we show them the ad and then they went and bought something. Um, and you know, it's not just a behavioral uh, targeting, ad targeting industry, but I think this is the biggest culprit. Um, and we still don't have clear answers. And I think that's very telling from an industry that it's all about math, that it cannot prove unequivocally and that it's so shady and it, it doesn't want to show the numbers. It really fights showing any numbers and when there's any numbers that come out there's all this stuff about fraud or alleged fraud and like how youtube misrepresented numbers facebook misrepresented numbers and i'm like oh it was a bug it was a bug it was a bug and we've just been hearing this for years um so it just tells you like maybe this isn't working uh for the advertisers and the public that supposedly wants better ads um and we said, well, there's contextual advertisement and people would point, say, well, yeah, but why would I show a contextual ad if it is valued as less? Like I will get less money out of a contextual ad. And a contextual ad, it's basically an ad that is only based, for example, if you're visiting a, a website that is uh, about sports, it will be ads about sports, right? It will not know who you are. Um, and the problem is, even though 
we have all these questions about whether targeted advertisement actually is much better or not, it still has that higher value because it, it exists. And humans, we're not always the, the most rational people. If there's something that people say there's more data, so supposedly should work better, you're going to put an inherent higher value on it, whether there's a proof or not that that actually works. And when you add competition uh, around it and you have the pressure of your competitors also using this technology, you cannot afford not using something that might have a competitive edge, right? So on a very low logical level, you have to use it and you have to put a higher value on it. Uh, the problem is that, I mean, there, the other problem is that when you do that, then if you're putting a higher value on targeting people, it means that the higher value within that market is going to be with for the players that have the most data. And the only way to have the most data is by invading absolutely every aspect of everyone's life and to consolidate the industry. This forces the industry consult to consolidate and reduce competition to the point that we don't really have competition. We only have a bunch of players and that we're seeing the latest new data it's allegedly collusion uh, uh, for uh, between uh, Facebook and Google. Um, and But this is natural because this is how the industry is designed to be. This is an industry that is designed to uh, concentrate. So it, it's a crazy market that unless we break that apart, we're not all of the privacy respecting, and by privacy, I mean not targeted, not behaviorally targeted, all of the other options, until we solve that, they just don't have a chance because they're never going to be valued at, even at the same level. And because they're never going to be valued at the same level, no one in business will invest in that solely. Um, so let me ask you something. Now, first off, I agree with you. To my listeners, he's absolutely on point. Um, but I, I want to provide a, a kind of a counter to this. You said that humans um, as a species tend to not be rational. We know that's true. Okay. We, we all have our moments, um, you know, uh, but I would argue even worse, we tend to be lazy. Yes. Um, and the reason this is important is that the counter argument to everything that you just said is that nobody is forcing you to use Facebook. Nobody is forcing you to use Google. What they have done is they have created a product that is so easy to get whatever you want that the human condition just molds itself to it. So you have to ask yourself, why is that a problem? Right. And the counter argument is that it isn't, right? Because they're not forcing you. But the problem that you have is that most users by far are either apathetic to the problem because they're lazy or they don't understand the problem. And if they did, they'd be terrified. Yep. Um, people, you know, I have, uh, we all have relatives, but I have a, a relatives that have uh, one of these, I'm not going to say which brand, but one of these smart speaker things that you can talk to. And I won't, I won't have one of those in my home. 
and they asked me why. And I said, and then I said the device's name, buy condoms. And they freaked out. My cousin freaked out, ran over, turned off the speaker, canceled the order, the whole bit. And she, she was really looked at me like, how could you do that? I'm like, you asked me why I won't have one of these in my house. It's because it's always listening. There is no privacy. Now, there is a cultural question, though, when it comes to this privacy. And again, I do agree with you. But isn't there an argument that a good portion of the world's problems are because of because of privacy, because we value this privacy, because we keep secrets. Oh, that's their business. We won't intervene. Oh, that's his business. I'll, you know, or whatever, or that's a secret. Don't tell anybody. And then all of a sudden we become in the United States, a nation of secrets. And because of that, you can't trust anything. What if Everything was just out there, right? I mean, and we... yeah, just continue, sorry. Oh, no, please go ahead and say what you're going to say. I, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of things there. Um, and the first one, I think you were talking about the products they offer, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I do think that at the beginning, they offer products that people like. That's why they use them, um, right? I, I, I remember when I started using Gmail, uh, the state of email back then, it was disastrous and it did just they just offer us such a vastly superior product to anything out there um we're all trying to get our invites to gmail uh google maps is is such an amazing product too and like the search engine uh was better than anything else there like there is totally a thing where they offer a superior product um but you have to ask yourself why were those products capable of exceeding and we have to remember that um, the timing in which, for example, Google came, and it is not coincidence that it was after all these antitrust uh, threats against Microsoft and all these things that Microsoft had to change because Microsoft had a really tight control on, on the market. And they didn't have control on the market of everything that Google got into, but they definitely, definitely had a, a lot of controls. They could choose, you know, uh, well, they, you, you had to use Internet Explorer. Uh, they can choose whose uh, search engine is there. And I basically chose to, to, because everyone was using basically a, a Windows PC uh, that basically was choosing for the entire planet uh, what you were using for search or what you were using for email or what you were using as a browser. And it was only because of that that products like Chrome could succeed. Um, it was only because people could copy their contacts from one platform to other uh, platforms like Facebook could succeed because we had these, um, these, this market where competition was more possible uh, because we had had some actions against the incumbents. This is the only reason why they actually succeeded. It's not just that they had a, a better product. Of course, they needed a, a better product, but in an anti-competitive market, you need more than that. Um, and I think we're now at a point where these, uh, where they succeeded thanks to uh, a good amount of competition. And now they've consolidated in ways that they don't allow new entrants with what could be better products to actually be able to compete. 
And a lot of times I hear what you said, people pushing back and being like, well, people could not use Facebook. And like, if you don't use any of the Facebook entities, how do you communicate with someone? Because most people use WhatsApp or depending on the region you live, uh, if, if I didn't use WhatsApp, I just cannot communicate with my friends. If I don't use WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram, I'm cut off from most of my friends. Uh, so I can technically choose not to use some of their products. That is not mean. That doesn't mean that it's feasible. Um, if you have a certain amount of money to buy a phone, uh, you're very limited in the in the in in the OS that you can purchase, right? So I think there's 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 a, a, a fake choice paradigm where you don't necessarily have real um, real alternatives to many of these services. Um, so I agree. I, I, I have, you know, to me, it's just like, you don't have to have Instagram. You don't have to have Facebook. I have a teenage daughter, so I have this fight a lot. Um, it, the... But the she actually brought that point up to me is that, you know, because I won't let her have um, Instagram. And uh, she says, well, dad, I want to be able to talk to my friends. And I'm like, well, text them. She's like, nobody texts. (laughs) What do you mean nobody texts? I've got a whole phone full of texts. And she's like, well, you're old, dad. Okay. (laughs) So there's a valid point there, right? In that these companies have created an eco, not ecosystems, the wrong word. They have created a community where you get ostracized if you don't use the tools of that community. And although I know that like Facebook likes to stand up and say, well, there's plenty of competition and technically there is, right? I mean, you can use Nextdoor, Heck, you could use Craigslist, right? It, I mean, it's not that hard to create a social paradigm. But there's the mass effect, right? It's like, for example, um, I'm a moderator for shuttle bus conversions on Facebook. Now, uh, shuttle bus is the bus that you pick up at the airport to go get your car rental or go to a hotel. Well, there's a lot of people out there that what they do is they take these shuttle buses and they convert them into uh RVs, motorhomes, and they live in them or they travel in them or whatever. There are 20,000 members in that group. How do I say, here's this new platform, let's say an open source platform like Discourse, uh, and it's privately hosted so that you're not going to have anything farmed. Um, and all I'm asking is, you know, 50 cents a month from each member uh, to make sure the costs are paid for. The answer is going to be, why would I do that? My family's on Facebook. My community's already here on Facebook and Facebook is free. Well, here's the problem. Facebook isn't free. Facebook costs a ton of money. It's just that the user is the product. And this idea in now in the marketplace, and I think this is what you were alluding to, it's not that there's one monopoly it's that there's half a dozen corporations that are so large, they have created a monopoly amongst themselves. It's like a gentleman's agreement, right? Where, okay, we're coming into this space, but we're only going to do X. And the other entity is like, that's great. We're in this space and we're only doing Y. 
and we're all going to go to the same clubs and we're all going to drink the same scotch and we're all going to play the same golf and we're going to laugh all day long at all these people that don't realize that we're all working together to monopolize their lives, to become their lives. Um, sorry for the soapbox there, <laughs> but that's kind of what I, I mean, that's what I felt when you were saying this. Would, would that yeah. kind of be accurate? Yeah, I think a lot of it is 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 that where, I mean, it, it, it's such a hard balance, right? I, it, when we talk about competition, um, you have to first define the market, right? Uh, at least if, you, if you're looking at it within the antitrust laws in the US, well, in any workplace, you will have to start to define the market. Uh, and how you define the market is really important. Uh, like some people, if you're, if you're being anti-competitive, you're going to try to define the market as wide as possible so you can claim that there's competition. Um, I think there's also, when we use the word competition, we need to be careful because when we say, for example, there's competitors, are we saying that there's competitors or are we saying that there's other companies that kind of do the same thing? Because I think like sometimes people assume that because there's other uh, entities in, in, in the, that market and defined market, it means that there's competition and not necessarily, you pointed to a few things because of that. And it's that friction. It, just because there is perhaps something that is someone that is offering a similar product or a product that um, could um, replace that uh, products that are replaced uh, that can replace between each other uh, that doesn't mean necessarily that there's competition because there's some friction to changing and a lot of the questions when you look at antitrust is well what is that friction like what are the incentives or or what are the things that are blocking you from making that switch? And it might be that, uh, uh, for example, if you want to switch uh, from a music service to another one, a music service that was really happy to uh, import your playlist from another one, and now that is really big, now they suddenly then don't let you export your uh, playlists. And if you spent a couple of years in that music service and you have a huge library of music you like with lots of playlists, the friction of you switching to another service, even if it is better and better price, it's really high because you have to start from zero for a lot of work that you invested. So I think that that's another thing that we need to look at, at the friction for which someone can move from one product to another. Uh, and, and you pointed to a lot of these uh, good things. It, it, these are very good points. You also alluded to, well, is it, a, is it a thing about the product, but also a thing about people knowing what's happening? And I think that's what Cambridge Analytica showed us, that people weren't really aware of it. I, and on one part, I'm, I'm angry because we did such a terrible job of explaining to people why this is relevant to them. Um, and now we're doing a much better job of that because privacy is in the conversation every single day when you open the news. Uh, so clearly we're doing a much better job and people actually do care. But on the other side, I'm like, people shouldn't need to understand the inner workings of like the, the algorithms of these companies that decide what they see and what they don't see. People don't have to understand. They don't need to get an engineering degree to be able to use their computer. The whole point is they should be just be able to use it. Um, uh, and this is where like, Technologies like to talk to technical 
solutions. But this is why I think also policy is so important because policy brings solutions to where people shouldn't need to understand the technology. They should just be able to use it and be respected and be able to have a fair amount of options where they can move among them without friction or equal friction in between them. Um, uh, well, not equal friction, but with, a, with lower friction uh, in between them to have the choices that actually uh, are better for them and not the choices that, the mar- that some market players have decided for them. You know, you brought up a really good point with the, the music service. Now, it took me a long time to actually use a music service just because I had all my music uh, on my hard drive. Um, but to, there's two, two things that you bring up and one of them is really, it, it is so valuable in terms of the friction of, let's call it the cost of migration. Yeah. Um, and here's, and whether or not there's actual competition here, and here's a perfect example for any business. If you're using Google docs, how hard would it be for you to not use Google docs? <laughs> now here, here's the catch. There is software out there, uh, uh, LibreOffice, and I'm not talking, I'm talking about cloud-based. You can use LibreOffice via the web. And there's another one that I actually really enjoy called OnlyOffice. And they are solutions uh, that compete with Google Docs, as does, you know, Microsoft has their version as well. But the cost to migrate out of that is too high. And so, People, once they're in Google Docs, they stay in Google Docs. Um, and the cost of entry for a competitor is not only too high, it's pretty much insurmountable, right? I mean, the only companies out there that could that have the resources to build something like that would be like Apple, Facebook, or Amazon, right? The other two companies that exist in that space, which would be, you know, Google and Microsoft already have the solution. Yep. Um, so there's that point. And I, and I think that's really valuable um, that it, it's, it's almost as if this was foretold 50 years ago with the advent of the free software movement and open source in that, you know, the whole point of the free software movement and the open source movement was that it's a level playing field. Now, what you do with it for you or for your client is great, but everyone starts at the same base, right? If you, inst- everyone can install Linux and you all start at the same base and then you can build from there. Um, so I, I just, I, I, we could go on for hours. We've already been doing this for 57 minutes. I, this is just an amazing experience for me. Um, it, I have a question here on my notes is how do we mitigate these threats? And I think that we've discussed that, you know, we're talking about policy um, and I lean libertarian. So I kind of like to have as least policy as possible, but I do think that there's definitely a, you know, if you're not hurt, it, if you're hurting someone and be very real, I mean, these companies are, have a stranglehold on the market and that's damaging. So you're hurting somebody uh, in, in certain ways. Um, so competition is how we mitigate a lot of these threats and policy is how we mitigate a lot of these threats. But the other part of this is disruptive technology, right? There's a technology that comes along 
every once in a while. Linux is one of those, PostgreSQL is one of those. The internet as a public consumer network is one of those, uh, the smartphone. Um, what do you think is a technology that may come along in the next five to 10 years that can become consumer or you know consumable that could disrupt a lot of this? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be drones. Um, and I I don't, when I talk about drones, I don't mean the ones that, uh, you know, the typical drones that people buy to either do racing or um, filming. I think they're great. They've changed a lot of things, but I, I mean the ones that are going to be uh, at an industrial level. And I think one of the bigger ones is going to be, uh, uh, for example, package delivery deliveries. Um, the Amazon delivery drone. Amazon, Google, and the other many companies that are trying to get into that space. Um, and the what's happening right now is that um, there are now, the FAA is trying to come up with uh, regulation, uh, with rules about how we fly what's called um, BV loss drones, uh, beyond visual line of sight. So there's a difference when you fly your own drone to film things, you should be able to look at your drone with your eyes. And that is called visual line of sight, right? Like you, you, you have act, you're actually seeing where the drone is and where it's flying. Uh, the next step is the drones that fly beyond what your eyes can see. And then you're using other types of sensors, GPS and sensors to figure out where the drone is and control it either manually or automatically or not. And those are the drones that have a huge, um, they're going to have a huge impact in so many industries in our lives, both positive and negative. Uh, there's a, you know, the film industry really likes those drones, so they cannot, they don't want to fly huge helicopters above the, above their crew, or in dangerous areas. Uh, if you can find a drone, you greatly reduce that risk. So there's really good uses for these uh, infrastructure inspection, where it would be difficult or dangerous to put crew flying or hanging from cables or rocks or whatever. Um, now you can just send a drone fly far away and like do that all inspection automatically. But it also brings a lot of other issues that you don't traditionally see, for example, in hobbyist drones, even though they kind of exist, but just the scale is gonna be different. So if you think of when uh, Google Street View started, a lot of people got you know, really angsty about their photo of, from the front of their house being on the internet. Well, now imagine a company that is flying drones every day over your house and they forget about a photo, but now they have video every day of your house and they can see you know, the heat imprint from your uh, roof so they can figure out how much energy you consume, which rooms are the ones that you use, how many people live there. They can look at the cars outside, what brand, how old, and then they can start figuring a lot of information about you to either commercialize the data, uh, they can be used in ways for like uh, marginalize even more people through ads, uh, whether they show them uh, higher rates for uh, loans or not, uh, this sort of thing. There's many ways it can be used. And it's, it's going to be very invasive, uh, in my opinion. And I think Although we're at the very beginning of that industry, I think this is the right time to have those conversations and think really hard how it's going to affect us and make sure from the very beginning we have protections. Because what usually happens is that people like to run 
and especially with these big companies today, they like to run and they don't want to have to care about these issues that impact people. They just want to get out of the door running. And in this case, they want to get out of flying, uh, literally. Um, and once the cat is out of the bag, it's gonna be very hard to put limits. There's gonna be a lot of damage done if we don't put those protections. So drones is one of the things that I'm really particularly concerned right now because we're at the very beginnings of this industry and we really need to put those protections from the very beginning. We need to start thinking about how people are gonna be negatively impacted because it has a lot of good potential uh, but it also has a, uh, a lot of potential to cause harm. You know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are probably like, nah, not a, that's just not going to happen, right? I, I hear it all the time. That's not yeah. going to happen. Um, there's a couple of things that scares me about what you just said. Um if someone, first off, where I live, if someone flies a drone over my property, uh, I am a avid Second Amendment uh, person, and that drone won't make it very far. <laughs> um, uh, so let's be very clear. But here's the thing. If private industry can do it, if you are concerned about private industry knowing, and let, let's, I mean, you alluded to some of the stuff that they can know, but they can also know things like, are two people in bed? through heat signatures, right? Um, if you're concerned about private industry knowing this stuff, then you better damn well be concer concerned about the government knowing this stuff. Oh, yes. Right? There's the, there's the two sides of that. I mean, one of them is the, the ultimate destiny of we never have to get off the couch. Uh, food is just brought to us. We've experienced this with like DoorDash and things like that now. Uh, all of our entertainment is right there on our TV or our phone. Um, we get all of our dopamine rushes. And in reality, you really don't need anything else except that you are going to end up in a manic state of depression, obesity, and die if you don't get off that couch. That's what That literally is what will happen. But there's the other part of this in that the government will have access to this as well. And the government's purpose in every government, which is why we always we always ebb and flow and go back and forth and between the parties and, and when some people are president and when they're not and all this stuff, is control and authority over the population. Now, some of that's good, right? Some of that's very bad. And um, the government having access to this is even more terrifying. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's just, I mean, the idea, what bothers me right now when we talk about privacy is that there is a little bit of effort that anybody has to make, whether it be, like you said, buying my credit card rec records or, you know, knowing what I buy. And if for people who don't realize how invasive this is, just think about it. This conversation that I'm having right now, I have an Android phone next to me. Now I'm running Linux on my laptop and I have a blue microphone, which is what I use for the podcast. Now I guarantee you that when this podcast is over, I will start seeing ads that are relevant to what this conversation has been somehow. Now they all say, we don't listen, wanna bet? Worse, if I'm on Facebook, 
and I type in whatever, right? And I'm just browsing groups. All of a sudden, when I go to Amazon, I get a whole bunch of lists of what I might like. And somehow it has something directly related to what I was looking at on Facebook. Now, a lot of people consider that convenience. And to some degree, they're right. But now the government has that information. Now what happens? It only takes one election to completely change the course of the country. One election that allows certain laws to be passed. Patriot Act is a good example. It, it, it's dangerous. And this, this, this drone thing, it's, all, it's, it's mass surveillance, right? I mean, is what we're really talking about. I mean, a person should be able to lay on their deck naked. And no one needs to know that. And we won't be able to because of these drones. You, you bring an extremely important part, which has been actually one of the main things that EFF has been working the past years, which is the relationship with, between government and industry. And what we see is that law enforcement is trying to go around a lot of the limitations and laws that are there to protect people uh, by going directly to companies. So, hey, there's there's like all these laws about getting uh, DNA uh, from people. Why don't we just go and buy it from one of these companies that offer you like to tell you like what percentage or what ethnicity or whatever. Right. Uh, we'll just get that database. database. Um, or ring, uh, doing like you install this uh, doorbell camera in your house and you didn't know that they have these partnerships with police where they even provided a map of who has ring so they can go and even, even train them on how to go and take you and ask you or get your uh, video for whatever reason they want instead of actually getting a court order as they should. Um, and what we see is that more like increasingly there's a lot of these uh, law enforcement agencies and that are instead of going through the proper means to get information where, where it is appropriate, uh, they're just getting to this location data is one of those things where like all these apps are getting so much of data location data on you and they're like, oh, why are why are we going to bother on actually creating and getting this information when we can just go and buy it like everyone else because this is what it's sold in the ad business, right? So let's just go and buy it. And if you worry about your government, regardless of which side, in this country is very split, but it doesn't matter on which side you are, you're going to worry about the government from the other side using these things against you. So the easy answer is they shouldn't have it because regardless of how the election sways, it eventually will say in a, sway in a way that you don't like it and you don't want the government to have these access just because. Um, so you care, but even more so, any other government can do this. This has been a great concern from, for intelligence agencies that want to protect the national interests that they know that other actors are getting data through these networks or these private entities or this is how these intelligence agencies get information from others, right? Like this is such a big issue that regardless of which side you're in the political spectrum in this country, you care. And 
even if you didn't care so much about your own government, I'm sure you care about other governments that might be a threat to this one. Um, and they can also have the same access. Like if this government can access it, others can, it's just a matter of money. Um, and just a little thing, I would not advocate for shooting drones because uh, that that is probably illegal. And the FA has strong opinions in that. I mean, your private property is your private property, but you just want to warn people listening. Uh, no, the they, FA has no, strong I, opinions about shooting drones. You do it, you have a good point. Um, and I certainly wasn't discussing, uh, say, uh, you know, an aerial drone that's unmanned, that's clearly law enforcement or something like that. Um, I was more discussing, so for example, it is illegal to fly over private property in Washington state with a drone. Um, so that's actually where my comment comes from. It's not, yeah. you know, that's actually a very good point. Please don't go starting shooting all the drones. No. Um, it, it, it will not lead down a good path. Uh, your better path, although slower, uh, but more effective for society would be legislative. Um, uh, to that point, like it, we should have mechanisms. Like if, if you have industry flying drones over your property and you don't like it, you should have mechanisms which you can put a, an, a complaint and say like, no, I don't want drones flying like low with like cameras on my property. Uh, you should absolutely have that power. So now that's interesting because I would actually argue no, well, yes, I should have that power, but the power should be implicit, right? right. It's, not, it's not whether or not I said don't fly over my property. It is, I said you could fly over my property. Yeah. It should, there is no reason at all that any drone should be able to fly over any person's property for any purpose unless that individual has given explicit permission for them to do so. And when I say this, Everyone says, well, what if? There is no what if here, because guess what? It's 2022, which means how long have we had pretty much everything that's in your house, right? The microwave is still the microwave. The fridge is still the fridge. The TV is still the TV. It's just newer, a little bit more expensive and doesn't last as long because they want you to buy it again the next year. Nothing's gonna change, right? And in the only what if scenario that I see is through say safety, which would be, I called 911 and the fastest way for them to get me an EpiPen is to have a drone deliver it. I have given them permission to do that. Other than that, to me, the drone discussion is, I mean, maybe I'm being naive, but it, I mean, we should be stopping it dead at that. Well, there's a big issue with that. Um... You know, where does your private property in terms of airspace uh, stops? And this has actually been a matter of debate for many years that the that uh, just recently, actually, in a case, the Department of Transportation had a different definition from the FAA, which was hilarious, in my opinion, uh, because I think the FAA will argue that any usable airspace and for them, like, probably after anything above the grass is usable airspace. So they get to do whatever they want. They get to like, you know, regulate that. Uh, so this actually leads to a very interesting debate on what, where does your private property stop when it comes to the airspace? And I don't have an answer for that. It's I just like, it is a very, very contented thing because when you have airliners flying, um, 
if you had the same logic, then no one could fly airplanes, right? Uh, because if, if the if your private property just goes all the way to space, uh, then like good luck uh, getting authorization from every single house or community so you can fly airplanes. So it, it, it's one of those things where it's like, there must be a happy medium and where that happy medium for drones is, it's, it's the whole question of debate. As you point out, you don't want at all industry flying drones up off your house. Um, and this is why like organizations like ours uh, want uh, this transparency and they, we want community control. How that's gonna come out, we want to have that discussion. And uh, it, it, this is where like the most, um, the most debate is in where we actually want to have the discussion and have some uh, at least good starting points where it gives at least some power to people to make that decision for themselves and for their communities. You're totally right. You know, it's interesting, and I don't want to, I mean, I'm happy to continue this for as long as the time that you have, um, but we are over at this point. But um, so there's a couple of things I'd like to bring up. Um, the, if you don't think that this is a very real problem, I'll give you an entertaining way to realize what a problem it is. There is a show on Amazon Prime. It's actually an Amazon Prime show, um, meaning they produced it, uh, called Clarkson's Farm. Oh. And have you seen this? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay, so I watched the short thing that got me hooked. I said, okay, you know, why not? We'll, we'll try it out. When he drives up in that Lamborghini tractor, mm -hmm. I was hooked right there. I could, I mean, it was just, I was watching the whole thing. But here's why this is a problem. The United Kingdom's government will fly over farms to determine what you're growing. Now, some people would say, well, what if they're growing cannabis? Well, regardless of the fact that the fact that cannabis is illegal is just stupid. Um, in a lot of places, obviously it's getting better in the United States. The fact is, is that a farmer on his property should be able to grow anything legal without a reproach. And it's not the government's business. That's now the United States, as far as I know, I could be wrong. You know, I'll, I'm going to say NSA, now they're listening. So who knows? Um, doesn't do that. But imagine with the problems that Andreas is bringing up with drones, if you don't think that a company is going to build a drone that will deliver your packages, which is lovely, but then also analyze the vehicles on your property so that the next time you log into your account, they can make an educated guess as to how much money you make so they can try and price you up, you're not paying attention to what's happening. These drones are, I mean, like you, like you said, these drones do have purpose, right? Like, like you said, being able to infrastructure, uh, you know, evaluation, flying on roofs to check for leaks, you know, things, safety, you know, related things. Any tool can be good, but any tool can also be bad. So yeah. we have to be very, very careful about what we allow, not just private industry, but also the government as citizens to be able to do with our lives as a whole, right? Yeah, I mean, we you bring sort of very good points on 
And I think this leads to several things that one thing that we like to say in EFF is it, you need to make sure something is proportional, especially when we talk about law enforcement or government action, it has to be proportional. And the, the example, for example, of, of looking at, uh, at what's being farmed, um, satellites have a really good use where they're looking at, at farming so farmers know uh, how their crops are, are, are reacting, right? They can look at different types of data. This is accessible for farmers in Europe and the US, and they can be far more efficient with their crops. They can make very good educated decisions about their crops with really high precision. We're not just talking about like, oh, in like very large amounts of land, like really, like they can look at small parts of the land and look where, how things are going to grow before they even pop out because they can see these characteristics. And that is extremely useful for farming, right? So it's all about proportionality. If they're looking at, uh, at that because there's controls, forget about what's illegal, but because there's controls, because they want to make sure that uh, the land is being, it's, it's farmable in, in a decade or five decades, you know, they want to ensure that it's it's usable for the future. So they want to ensure that you're, you know, uh, switching the type of crops you're putting and sort of things like that. If it's proportional, uh, that might be reasonable. If it's a use that is actually useful. If you're using it just because you want to find ways of charging more money and exploit uh, farmers that are already having a really hard time uh, um, making means end, and they're being overtaken by large corporations, uh, that's probably a bad use. And, and that's the whole problem with we, why, you, as you say, like we really need to think through things because there's already uses of this stuff. Um, farming, for example, will greatly benefit of what they call uh, precision uh, agriculture, uh, where they could uh, Instead, if you still need to use pesticides for certain type of pests, and that is the only way to control a particular pest, but you still want to reduce the impact on the environment, instead of spraying with a plane the whole all of all over the crops, maybe with a drone you can just precisely uh, spread it just where the problem is, minimizing the impact for environment. That's a great use. Uh, but as you point out, there's also other bad. Uh, ways of using technology. And this is a thing that when I was studying engineering, a uh, professor told us, uh, technology is, is supposed to make your life better. That doesn't always mean easier. Uh, and technology is all about use. You do have to put your mind into how is this going to be used positively and how is this going to be used negatively. And if you ignore the negatives just because of the positives, you're part of the problem because you do have to put thought on your technology, how it's going to be misused and maybe start placing some restrictions or some solutions on what if this could be misused. Um, and it, it is, you're totally right. It's all about how you use it. I 100% agree. Well, this has been more than a refresh, a podcast about data and the people who wrangle it. I want to thank Andreas Ariata, Director of Consumer Privacy Engineering at the Electronic Frontier Foundation for his time. This has been enlightening. Thank you. This podcast is hosted by JD. 
Command Prompt Founder, and Postgres Conference Chair, and is produced by me, Lindsay Hooper, Director of Events at Command Prompt, Inc. Command Prompt provides Postgres support, professional services, custom development, and community leadership. Since 1997, we've focused on providing just excellent service, custom tailored to your organization's needs. We'll see you soon, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.